Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Bill George, co-author of True North and the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you, and I really, really enjoyed this book. It's one of those books that I'm going to give to my nephew, who is graduating next year from Emory University in their business school and going to work for Comcast this summer. So, Bill, let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Well, I, uh, I'm i an engineer. In fact, I went to school across town from Emory at Georgia Tech, and I went straight through to Harvard Business School. And then uh, spent three years uh, working in the U.S. government in the Department of Defense, working in the Office of Secretary of Defense, and then worked for the Secretary of the Navy for a year, and then went to business and started the microwave oven business, consumer, not the not the commercial business, consumer microwave oven business for Linden Industries, and built that up for about uh, almost 10 years, and then I spent 10 years at Honeywell. And uh, the most important thing in my career is when I made the move to Medtronic back in 1989, and uh, I can share that with you later if you'd like, but uh, why that was so significant. But well, anyway, tell us now. Well, I had uh, been on a track in my life. Uh, my father wanted me to come CEO of a major company. And he, when I was a boy, like nine years old, he was naming the companies. Like he would say, son, uh, you got to make up for my failures and be head of a company. And, you know, there's a great company in Atlanta, Georgia called the Coca-Cola Company and another one in Cincinnati called Procter & Gamble and a new little computer company out in the East Coast called IBM. Of course, other than drinking Coca-Cola, I'd never heard of these companies. Uh-huh. And But, uh, you know, I had that in the back of my mind. And so, uh, you know, I thought I was some kind of leader. I wound up losing uh, seven elections in high school and college in a row. And uh, some seniors took me aside at Georgia Tech, gave me the best, some of the best advice I'd ever got. And that was... Uh, and I was quite young at the time, I think 19. They said, Bill, no one's ever going to work with you, much less be led by you, because you're moving so fast to get ahead that you don't take time for other people. And you know what? They were right. It was like I was building a resume instead of a life. And uh, that really caught me. And I spent a lot of time transforming, trying to change and, and develop my own self-help leadership plan uh, to become a leader. And I was able to lead a lot of organizations in college and in graduate school. But beyond that, see, now that I got into my mid-40s and I'm en route to becoming CEO of Honeywell, this great global company, uh, and uh, I would, came back from Europe where I've been head of U- uh, Honeywell Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And all of a sudden, I get you know, one set of turnarounds after another. I got nine division turnaround, then another six, then another nine. And uh, I looked at myself in the mirror one day. And I, I love to be with customers and employees, Mark. That's where I really resonate. That's where I get my energy. And I found I'm doing nothing but chasing numbers all the time. So I, uh, I uh, looked at myself in the mirror one day and I realized inside I was deeply unhappy. And I really wasn't enjoying my work. It was like I was so eager to become CEO. I was grabbing for that brass ring up there. 
and uh, instead of being myself, instead of being trying to be the authentic Bill. And so at that point in time, I called Mitch. I turned Mitch right down three times for a job, and I called him back and said uh, to the CEO, I "said Job's still open." He said, I turned down four months ago. He said, "Well, we're about ready to fill it, but you can get in line if you want." Well. As fortune turned out, I was able to go to Medtronic. It was the best thing I ever did uh, because Medtronic is a very much a mission-driven, value-centered company, whereas Honeywell's mission was making money. Medtronic's mission is restoring people to full life and health. And I can, even though I know how to generate a lot of profits, it's only through serving other people. So that's what got me excited about that. And frankly, everything that's happened since then. I time Medtronic, the teaching I do at Harvard, all the writing I do, all came out of that one decision. And uh, I think that was, uh, like I said, the best professional decision I've ever made. What did your dad do? My dad was a consultant. He worked for Booz Allen. Then he went off, formed his own firm years later when he didn't make partner. And uh, I thought he was a very good consultant. But he was more a person on the sidelines and uh, and an advisor. And uh, I've always had an aversion marked to bullies because I saw him get pushed around by some bullies. And he would tell me these stories. I wasn't firsthand seeing it, but he told me about it. So um, anyway, uh, but he was he was wonderful. He gave, gave me his whole life, but it was all about I'm an only child. And he was 43 when I was born. So it was all about uh, what I could do. That's, he Sounds like up. he did a great job of coaching you. <laughs> he did, actually. It was actually my mother that was the biggest influence. So she was the values person. She said, son, I don't care if you get A's or C's in school, just be true to your values. And I never lost sight of that, even though she died when I was 24. I've been oh. very following her advice all these years. Sorry for your loss. Uh, why did you write this book? Well, I I feel that uh, this is, you're referring to the Emerging Leader Edition of True North. Yes. And because yep. uh, I've, you know, I've written a series of things with names True North, but this one's 75% new, new content. Mark, I feel like we're going through a massive generational change. Now, superficially, it's going from the baby boomers to the Gen Xers and millennials and eventually Gen Z. But I think it's much deeper than that. We're moving from the old command and control style that was venerated to uh, uh, kind of headlined by Jack Welch in the 80s and 90s to a whole different style of leadership, which is much more human-centered, uh, values-based, uh, uh, and purpose-driven. And, and rather than just trying to see how much money we can make for ourselves. And we're moving from ego-oriented, charismatic leaders to people that are authentic and real. And I'm thrilled to see this. And I wanted to reinforce it and share the stories of many, what I consider the baby boomers that are forerunners uh, of these changes, people like Paul Bowman, Andrew Nui, Mary Barra, Tim Cook, Satya Nadella, uh, but also feature a lot of the emerging leaders that are coming up. So the purpose of the book is to inspire everyone in this call to step up now to leadership. You don't have to be at the top. You don't have to have a title. Uh, you can step up and take charge. And I think, too, we need to move away from hierarchical leadership and really to the people giving the power to the people doing the work. Yeah, I, I, and it comes through strongly in the book. I think the general populace has a different definition than the one you have in the book regarding authentic, because the Oxford Dictionary set defines this as undisputed origin, genuine. What's your actual definition of authentic leadership and the three parts of the formula for being authentic that you mentioned in the book? Well, I'd say that's a pretty good definition. Uh, being what it means to be authentic. Now, to being an authentic leader, you have to combine those things of taking that genuine you out into the world 
and working with and leading other people. But I'd say that's a pretty good definition. Uh, but I think the important thing that's been misunderstood is, you know, a lot of people are afraid to be themselves. I found when I first came out, I wrote an earlier book called Authentic Leadership in 2003. People were, said, what does that mean? They were like scared to be themselves, like they had to fake it to make it, which is one of the worst theories I've ever heard, and pretend to be something different than what they were. And, uh, and so I think uh, really the key, though, is what do authentic leaders do? And that's the important thing is they're not just looking at delivering $3.41 a share. They're looking at how do you align people around your company's purpose and its values? Uh, and I think that's the key. And then how do, you, uh, how do you empower them to lead? See, we came out of an era of power-based, tops-down leadership. We still see it in the political arena. But today, the, the top CEOs are all empowering of their teams and getting people and people at all levels are. And so I think we need leaders that empower people to be the best, they to reach their full potential, be the best version of themselves, and then to collaborate and come together rather than getting into to dog fights with each other and to operate not in self-interest, but in the best interest of the organization as a whole. So we're seeing that. And frankly, that's the way you deliver long-term shareholder value. There's no other way. You can deliver short-term shareholder value, I suppose, by cutting costs. But long-term, you have to do the, these kind of things to deliver sustainable results. Isn't that also how you draw, how you attract the best and brightest and retain them? I mean, that's what really smart people want anyway, right? Yeah, and particularly the newer generations. You know, a lot of uh, older CEOs don't understand their own workforce. And they say, oh, these millennials, they move around all the time. They're not serious about it. They want to a full life and they want to spend time with families. Yeah, I said, don't you want that? Uh, the only reason they move around is because your company doesn't have clarity of purpose. If you, the era I grew up in for a hundred years, GE was viewed as the role model company. And it's true. They were 10 years ahead of everyone in management terms and organization terms. Jack Welch was, but you know what? GE's gone because they, because today, you know, it's got to be about more than just making money. You've got to, you got to not just deliver a product and service, you've got to serve other people. You have to be a servant leader that's dedicated to creating better value for your customers, whether it's through new products or uh, new services. That's your job. And if you don't do that, eventually you'll be out of business like GE is. And I, I like throughout the book that you really talked about being ethical and moral and how you dealt with people and how you interacted with you know competition, everybody. On, on April 20th, the Wall Street Journal ran an article, when Apple comes calling, it's the kiss of death, which is about how Apple is alleged to steal ideas and people from small companies they show interest in acquiring. Whether it's true or not, there are enough stories that make one question that their ethics and morals. This doesn't seem to fit into, uh, into as you write, the true north of making the world a better place. What's your take on that kind of corporate behavior and leadership? which other companies like Amazon and Microsoft have also been accused of uh, as well in the past. Yeah, I don't know if I, you know, I hear those accusations. I've not been able to verify whether that's actually true. I think uh, it is true early on that uh, Steve Jobs did a lot of that, but he also did a lot of creative work on his own. And oftentimes we accumulate ideas of others and turn them into our own ideas. But I would say Tim Cook, uh, and you mentioned Microsoft, uh, uh, Satya Nadella are two of the most ethical people I know. 
So that comes across surprise to me. Yes, these are the two most valuable companies in the world. And I think it's because they have such great leadership. And I think we've seen, uh, you know, people thought when Steve Jobs passed away that Apple would never make it. Well, Tim Cook, totally different style, totally different approach, not the inventor or creator that uh, Steve was, built a, a great organization. And certainly Satya Nadella has totally transformed Microsoft. I uh, had a lot of criticism of Microsoft under Steve Ballmer. I remember trying to deal with him in the late 90s and early 2000s. And man, it was impossible to deal with them. They were the most arrogant company I've ever met. Uh, Satya now says, you know, uh, we thought we were God's gift to creation in 99. But today you got to be, you got to go from a know-it-all to learn it all. And I think that's pretty good. And he's put a lot of emphasis on empathy and compassion. And that's what you have to bring to the workforce today. So it's interesting, this criticism. I think sometimes successful companies are severely criticized. Now, I would have more criticism for, for Amazon as running more of a sweatshop, but but I would say those two organizations are doing it right. I think for Microsoft, um, Steve Ballmer's reign was a 10-year dead period for them. Uh, and I taught at the Wharton School during that uh, time that he was there. My students would come back from work in there and said they were so dysfunctional that they were like uh, fiefdoms and that they barely worked together in that or organization and didn't see a real vision uh, for the company. And the current CEO has done a phenomenal job of making Microsoft, again, one of the companies that young people want to work for. A question from the audience, how to engage- Can we, can we Mark, can we just stay with that for a second? Yeah, yeah sure, absolutely. Really key points. Uh, under Bomber, Everything came to the top, and he was a big, powerful guy, huge energy, bouncing around all the time. But everything came to the top, and what happens is like having a king. It, the, the political fiefdoms that you alluded to run the place, and so everything becomes politics. It's not focused on what customer needs. I know a lot of Microsoft customers today who can just pick up the phone and call Satya and say, hey, we got a problem. Can you help? And uh, Or we got a problem with your products. Would you get them fixed? And uh, that kind of customer focus, that openness and allowing people, the teams at Microsoft, like LinkedIn, they acquired LinkedIn and they've done a phenomenal job, but they've allowed LinkedIn to be who they are. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do yep. want to say that that whole transformation is one of the most dramatic in corporate history. You're right. There were 14 years where Steve Bomber's in charge, where the stock price was actually lower after 14 years than it was when he took over. Of course, under Satya, it's gone up eight times. You know, and yeah, there have been some layoffs right now, but uh, and it's just saying Apple hadn't had any, but a uh, great company. No, I would say he's one of the top three to five CEOs in the whole world. Um, yeah, the job he's done good. there has just been amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, question from the audience, how to engage current generation workforce, instant gratification uh, minded employees? How, so how do you best engage this uh, younger generation? Well, you have to inspire them and empower them. They wanna work for a company with a purpose and a set of values. And if your company doesn't have that, it's not gonna go well. They're not there to make the, the, the CEO or the owners rich. Uh, they wanna work, we're gonna make a difference. And if they don't find it in company A, they'll go to company B. And they wanna to know today, do you have a diversity, equity and inclusion plan? Do you have a climate change plan? Are you really concerned about the world? is what the products were, are the products we're making? At Medtronic, this was an easy answer. Yeah, they're helping restore people to full life and health. And we measured ourselves by 
how many people are helped every year. So I think this generation is very purpose driven. And so what the key now to any organization is, can you find an alignment between your employee's purpose and your corporate purpose? And that's the key to building a great organization. If you can't do that, you're going to face a rough road ahead. Uh, you write the hardest person you will ever have to lead is yourself. W- what do you mean by that? Huh. Uh, yes, it's most people don't want to acknowledge who they are. In fact, they want everyone else to change rather than changing themselves. And I think it's very hard. I told you that story. I went through uh, repeating some of my own mistakes, but it's hard to change. And I think. To do that, that's where this concept of true north comes in. You've got to know your true north. Your true north, in the essence, the shorthand here is who you are. Who? What are your most deeply held values? What's your purpose in life? Uh, where do you find fulfillment? Where do you find satisfaction and joy through your work and your life? And in understanding that, you know who you are, and you're no longer just identified by where you went to school or your national origin, your race, your religion your gender, but it's who you are. And that's where we connect with people. And today, as a leader, you also have to lead with your heart. You can't just be the smartest person in the room. You will fail. You have to, yeah, you have to be smart enough to do that, but you don't need to be the smartest person. We got to hire people around you much smarter, but you have to lead with your heart. And if you don't, you're not going to be successful. By the heart, I mean, you have to have passion for a purpose. You have to have compassion. For the customers you serve, you have to have empathy for your employees. You have to have courage. You have to be bold. So those are the qualities today that we're looking for in leaders. That's what you have to know. It's only when you go through this rigorous process of figuring out who am I. And I think we learn the most, not through the good times, but the difficult times. When we fail or we went through a very painful experience as a child, or in my case, getting rejected in, in elections or a loss of loss of a of a sibling or a parent or a parent divorce or getting fired from your first job. These are where people really learn who they are. It's when you're not, when you can say, oh, here are all my degrees and everything. No, it's when you're willing to stand and face yourself in the mirror because leaders that can't do that. Jeff ML to, at GE, after 16 years of taking the company apart, wrote a book and you know he was blaming everyone else for his problems. At a certain time, you got to look in the mirror and say, Bill, did you create these issues? And the answer probably is yes. So when you know that, then it's much easier to lead other people because then you can empower and inspire other people, letting them be who they are, not trying to make them like many versions of yourself. Yeah, I you know you're very uh, critical of his uh, stewardship of GE. Uh, and I had not read his book, but that's uh, disappointing to hear where he wasn't self-reflective and looked at what he could have done better himself. Um, a question from the audience. Uh, can you talk about Andy Grove's high output management written in the mid-1980s where Mr. Grove went down to the floor at Intel to see how the company was doing through mid-management individuals? Seemingly, Mr. Grove sought to understand the true north of the Intel essence. That's for sure. One of the great companies of the world going through some challenging times now. And they actually had a triumvir running the company. Gordon Moore, the chair, Bob Noyce, the vice chair, who was a technological genius. I could say Bob Noyce. I went out to meet with him personally when I was head of, I joined Honeywell in 78 and 79. And uh, 
you know, he laid out everything that's happened in the computer business the last 50, 45 years, everything. Amazing man. And Andy Grow was the operations guy. And then he took it over and did an incredible job. Now, there was a lot of pressure internally at Intel to perform, but he was very much in touch with the people on the firing line. And I think every CEO needs to do that day. They need to get out of their offices. You know, here's a, a, an ugly statistic, Mark. We did a study survey of CEOs at, uh, it came to our new CEO program at Harvard Business School. And we found my colleagues, Michael Porter and Noria did this, found that 72% of their time is spent in meetings with direct report or senior executives in their office or conference room. 5% with employees. Let that number register. 5 3% with customers. If you're not down on the floor, if you're not in the marketplace, how do you know what's going on? How can you be a great leader? And that's where people, they want to know who you are. They don't want some coming out of the, you know, just, uh, you know, something coming out of the head shed or a memo coming out or a video or even a town hall. They want to know who you are. They want you to be real. They want you to be authentic. And they want you to admit you make mistakes because they, they make mistakes too. And everyone can then admit them. So uh, I think Andy Grove was a great leader. And uh, and by the way, at the same time, he was leading, you know, a few years earlier, uh, David Packard, Bill Hewlett had the same philosophy, management by wandering around. They called it MDWA, uh, you know, management by MDWA, management by wandering around. But why not? Why are we out there knowing what's going on and, and, and listening to people? You know, too many CEOs want to tell people what to do rather than really listening to what the essence of the issues are. Uh, you always hear someone is a born leader. Is that true or can people be taught to lead? Uh, I think you learn how to lead. I think you're born with certain characteristics, but you're not born a leader. I, I'd like to think I was going to be a leader, but boy, I had a lot to learn. And I think we learn how to lead through life experiences. So I think, you know, if you have a desire to help other people and you want can use your gifts, then you become a leader to do that but you do that in understanding your role is more of a servant leader. Now, you're not going to learn this sitting in the classroom. I don't care if it's Wharton or Harvard or wherever, Mark. Uh, we, you, we teach a lot of leadership courses, but then we get people to really have experiential learning and share what they've learned about themselves and what they're doing rather than trying to, no, here are the principles of leadership or here are the 10 qualities you need for great leadership. People used to publish all that, except none of it was ever verified or validated. And uh, so, but I think it's not about that. It's about being real. And you'll find great leaders are as different as day and night. You and I were talking about Jack Bogle, who's one kind of leader, and you have Andrew Nui another, and Mary Barra. You know, these are very, very different people, but they're all very authentic and very real. So that's the key is be who you are. And there's not one right way to do it, right? No, there's definitely not one right way. And you've got to tailor it to the needs of your people, employees, and your customers. And, you know, in a different kind of business, a banking business, you, you know, you'd be authentic, but it's a different form of business than, say, to be in the, in the tech business or in the automobile business or in the consumer products business. And I think it's everything from the audience. Leaders the lack time place. to be reflective today to lead optimally with all. Whoops. Uh, optimally with all the digital distractions around them. How do they spare time for reflection and thinking? Boy, that's a great question. You know, yeah, it's not just digital distractions. We're living by the computer. We're living by emails. We're living by our iPhones, uh, you know, or Samsung, whatever product you have. 
and uh, and we're following social media. Yeah, you can spend your whole life doing that. And I think we also live by task lists. Now, look, I keep a task list of the things I need to do, but I think everyone on this call and every CEO and every leader who's just starting out and every professional person needs to take time out for elect reflection. Uh, you know, my friend Dove Simon calls it the pause. I, I happen to be a meditator. I've meditated for 45 years and I take 20 minutes every day in the morning or afternoon and meditate and reflect. How did I show up today? Uh, was I the leader I wanted to be? Did I follow my own values? Was I out there helping other people? What kind of things that challenge I have? Not thinking about task number nine that didn't get done. Putting all that aside. And you just need to do that because then you realize what's really important. And the key to you as a leader is separating the immediate from the important. If you're always following the immediate, the latest you got to get done, you'll never get there. So you really have to take time out for reflection. And all the great leaders I know are doing this now. They didn't used to. It was just work 80 hours a week and nonstop. And actually, if you don't do that, uh, uh, you won't be a very good leader. And so I think you're going to be a lot better delegator if you can reflect on what's really important and concentrate on those things and let other people do uh, the other the other work. I, I rinse ran a, uh, an organization and the chairman CEO was Hubert Schumacher, who built Senecor, if you remember Senecor. And he told me when I became the first executive director of this organization, I want you to take off from Friday afternoon, from right after lunch at one to the rest of the day. And I just want you to sit and think. And on hmm. Monday morning, when I meet with you, I want to know what did you think about? Wow. On for a year. And he said, I want you to just close the door. And I just want you to think about the mission of the organization and where do you want to take us over the next five years? And I don't want you doing anything else but that. Wow. And it stuck with me. Uh, I thought that was real smart. Um, another question from the audience. Being a customer-focused organization means more money has to be spent on human resources to bring better understanding from your customers to your services and products. Normally, staff is the most expensive part of any organization. So more and better staff means more expensive product service needs to be. What is your advice to leaders of smaller organizations on how to balance the books as these days, especially with inflation, customers are also seeking cheaper options? How to have and keep the good staff and also keep customers happy with your prices? Oh, very complex question. <clears throat> First of all, you got it right that your employees and your staff are the greatest uh, cost you have in the business. So then the question is, why don't you create an environment where they're fully engaged uh, and highly motivated around your company's mission? That's your job. Spend time doing that. And the numbers will come in. I assure you, uh, they will fall in place. Yes, you'll hit rocky periods. It won't be up, up, and away. Not every quarter will be better than the last quarter. But I think the important thing is that you're, uh, you're, you realize what really matters and who is in touch with your customers. Actually, Mark, I'm in favor of flipping the organization upside down and putting the frontline people, the people in touch with customers, the people in manufacturing responsible for quality, people in engineering responsible for innovations on the top. And all the rest of our jobs is to support them. And I think we need to do a lot more of that. Now, in terms of cost, you know, I think a lot of I would like to have far fewer managers, far fewer layers in the organization be much more in touch. You can manage 15 or 20 people. People don't think you can. Yes, you can. 
and flatten the organization out to be more in touch with the customers and with the products and not have so many layers because everything gets filtered through layers. And I think that's been the breakdown of many formerly great companies. As they grow, they become too bureaucratic, too many layers. So the cost I would take out is your middle management costs. And that's gonna offend some people on this line, but we need, we've got way too many managers, not nearly enough leaders. We need real leaders out there. We need each of you to be a real leader. And there's a huge difference uh, between managers and leaders. And our business schools, a lot of them are frankly teaching people the wrong things. It's all about management and not really uh, how you become the kind of leader you wanna become and reach your full potential as a leader. So the co- as far as costs go, I think that'll come into line. And if you have great people that are motivated, frankly, your customers are willing to pay more. Uh, like today you go into a Macy's, there's no one around to help you. You go into a more yeah. boutique, a clothing store, there are people who will help you. And you might pay a little more. You might pay 10 or 20% more, but you're willing to do that because you have great customer service. And isn't that what you want? Uh, and so, and the other p- problem I have right now, people are uh, not respecting the people that have had a lot of experience with the company that have been there 15, 20 years, and they're pushing them out, replacing them with people with no experience and not doing an adequate job of training. And then you've got a lot of inexperienced people in the company that are not committed to the company's purpose and its culture. So uh, I think there's a lot of mismanagement out there. We see this in Meta right now, uh, formerly Facebook. Isn't that, do you remember when Home Depot, uh, one of GE's, uh, folks took over Home Depot and almost ran it into the ground by firing all the experienced former contractors that you would go in and get advice from and have cheaper people working, literally drove the business into Lowe's. Yeah, this I, is Bob Nardelli. Yeah, right. And uh, former, the guy didn't get the job at GE. He later took Chrysler into bankruptcy after he got fired at Home Depot. But he was really destroying that organization. Because Home Depot's benefit was you could go in and get a benefit of exactly. I want to add a I want to add a porch I want to add a deck, uh, and uh, you know the story goes that uh, he standardized all the products and so you had to have the same wood in Jacksonville, Florida, as one of my friends told me that you had in Arizona. Except one is a very moist environment right on the ocean, the other one's extremely dry. And he standardized everything. And he I remember one of his board members, one of his founders, told me with great pride. You know, Bob replaced 70 of the 71 uh, vice presidents of the company. The only one he kept to the CFO was Carol Tomei, who's now at a UPS. And what a disaster. He got rid of all the people experiencing, got all the people on the store floor. And I said, okay, well, you can go to Walmart, get the products for 30% less, uh, but you get no advice. And so he was, he, but fortunately, Frank Blake came in and they totally turned that organization around. They're doing great now because they got back to their roots. See, organizations can't leave their roots. Walmart under Doug McMillan is a great company because they know their roots be the low-cost supplier and have the world's greatest logistical system now challenged by Amazon, of course. But you've got to know your roots and you've got to stay true to those roots of your organization. And if you lose that, you know, Medtronic's roots are in innovation and breakthrough products and solving medical problems. They're not in having the cheapest product out there. And so you have to be true to those roots. Um, another question from the audience. Turnover has been a big issue, specifically among the frontline manufacturing employees. What strategies did you use to engage and retain them as the CEO? My thoughts, I believe we need to talk about frontline career growth. I agree with the question 100% <laughs> with three exclamation points. 
Number one, what we do at Medtronic, have mission ceremonies for everyone. Everyone got a medallion. And here's the medallion. I'll show it to you. Everyone got this medallion to sit on their desk that talked about people being restored to full life and health. It used to be toward man's full full life, and we change it to, to toward full life and take the gender out. But, you know, that's what manufacturing people resonate. They didn't resonate with 341 a share. They couldn't understand that. They knew how to produce a quality product, and they knew a human life is the end of that. And one defective heart valve, if I made 500 heart valves a year, one defect, one out of 500, somebody could die, and they knew they couldn't live with that. So you inspire them around that, that purpose and thinking about that customer on the end of the product you make. And that's what we did. And then give them the power. Frankly, if I don't know about Medtronic quality problem, I would go sit in a break room with a group of manufacturing employees or I'd ask them on the line, what's going on? I'd learn a lot more than a different quality reports, you know, or just group of statistics. No, I learned what was really going on. So I think executives, managers, leaders at all levels need to be out with their people to know what's going on and to inspire them because they're the ones doing it. And when they do that, then they get the commitment to the company, to its purpose, and they're not going to leave because they're going to find the grass isn't greener somewhere else. No question. Uh, you quote that nine of 10 millennials prioritize work balance. Is that possible when the market goes down and companies lay people off and people like Elon Musk uh, ask his employees to give him 16 hours a day as he lays off 80% of a struggling company? And can that ever work in such a highly globally competitive market we live in today? Well, you can bring up Elon Musk. Look, Elon Musk is the greatest inventor of our era. And uh, with the Tesla is amazing. No one's been able to turn on an electric vehicle anywhere close to the Tesla. You know, I understand Lucent is about going out of Rivian's going out of business, you know, and the, the General Motors just pulled the bolt off the market. Uh, but, you know, he took over Twitter. It's not an invention job. And he's destroying what was already a troubled organization. So that's nice for him to say, but that's not what's going to make it go. And that's not how you create a sustainable organization. That may work for a while, but it's not going to sustain your organization. So I think he's way off base. He's gotten caught up in his ego and it's coming back to haunt him right now. He's already admitted six months after he acquired Twitter that the company's worth half of what he paid for it. I mean, so this is a huge problem. And as you know, I'm, well, I should say, I'm a great believer in free speech, but uh, we've seen a, a tripling of the uh, anti-Semitic statements, the uh, homophobic statements, the misogynistic statements, the quadrupling of racist statements. On That shouldn't be a site for that. And he got rid of all the people in content moderation. So there's no one to check those things out. So unfortunately, that site is not going well from a customer point of view. And, and frankly, people are looking for another site. They're going to Blue Sky. They're going to TikTok. And that's <laughs> that's where they're going. Well, his revenue has gone from five billion to three billion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know why? Because the advertisers pulled out. It was all driven by advertisers. But advertisers, how many major companies do you know that want to be associated uh, with those kind of statements, or or could live with them? You know? Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, there's free speech is free as long as you're responsible. At the end of the day, exactly. Uh, it seems that many of the CEO, many of the examples uh, of CEOs that you talk about had come from less than ideal circumstances, that, yeah. you know, personally, and that they powered, that powered their ambition. Is that more the norm? And if so, why is that? 
It's more, you know, the CEOs we see now came from middle class, some lower middle class, occasionally someone like Ken Frazier, one of the great CEOs of the world, Rand Merck, came from lower, lower class. You know, his father uh, was a janitor. Uh, and I think the reason is they're highly motivated, they're driven to achieve, and they want to do the right thing. And they also understand the lives of working people. And if you went to some elite university, nothing is elite university, I teach at one, uh, but if you just got too caught up in that elitism of those universities and that's all your colleagues also went to those kind of universities, I think you're not in touch with your own working people. I mean, Brian Cornell at Target is a great CEO, done a fantastic job. He came basically from a lower middle class family and he's done an incredible job, but he also understands his customers who come from similar backgrounds, you know, and maybe they're a white collar job now, shopping at Target, but he understands his customers well. And if you're kind of up here, you're going to miss it. So yeah, I think that's pretty good prep. I'm not saying people that are, come from uh, wealthy families aren't, aren't going to do it, but I can say there's a huge drive on a lot of people that didn't have that to make things better and to understand their employees and their customers. Can't disagree with that. Right now, we're going through uh, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. You have a formula for CEOs to follow during a crisis, which the world is currently facing. Please talk about the changes leaders need to make for us to survive and, and thrive. You know, the last 20 years, we've gone from one crisis to the next. And as you know, the business schools largely taught stable times like we had in the 90s. And yeah, it was up, up and away. And it was pretty easy, not easy, but it's a lot easier to be a CEO in the 90s when I was than it is for CEOs today because they're facing one crisis after another. And yes, we went through 9-11 at the start of the uh, new millennium. And we had the huge banking crisis. But, you know, COVID comes along and every single human being is affected one way or another by COVID. And it's had a huge, now we're dealing with post-COVID psychology. And we're waiting, we're watching and say, you know, people don't want to come into work or they're quitting because they don't feel a purpose in their work. And we've got a workplace shortage. On the other hand, we companies are cutting back uh, in anticipation of recession because they're raising interest rates. And we have the war in Ukraine. You can say, well, that doesn't worry me. Actually, it does, because if you go to the grocery store, you'll see how much food prices are up or at the pump for a while. They're gasoline. Now it's down, but it was way up for a period of time. So leaders today have to face these multiple intersecting crises. So to de and that is the VUCA world that you described, Mark. So what I would say is you know, my, my V is vision. You have to know where you're going. Think of yourself like a sailor and you're sailing to a point over here. There's an island you're trying to get to. You can't ever lose sight of that vision. A company can never lose sight of its vision. When it does, it's not going anywhere. That's where Meta is today, formerly Facebook. And But then I think you have to have an understanding of how the world works. Like a good sailor understands how the winds shift and how they blow and how to take advantage of them. You have to have an understanding of how the world works. Satya Nadella said, we really have to understand how the computational work is going to, world is going to work in the future. Now we're trying to figure out AI. So that's the second one is understanding. The third is you have to have compassion. You can't be a great leader today unless you have compassion for your customers and compassion for your employees. And then finally, I think you have to be adaptable. So the A, in uh, not ambiguity in VUCA, but in VUCA 2.0, it's being adaptable. So it's again, back to that sailor. You have to, you may think you're going here and you're going there. No, you have to adapt to the shifting winds to tack back and forth to eventually get to your goal. And yes, 
So the idea of a five to 10 year long range plan doesn't cut it today. It might be five weeks or five days because things are changing so fast and you have to adapt rapidly to those changes. And so that's what I think is critical for leaders to think about. So that's totally adaptable leadership is totally consistent with being authentic. Uh, you just have to adapt to changing conditions. You were you, uh, you come from an engineering background. You got an engineering degree from Georgia Tech. Do you think, and this is just my take on it, but I kind of think that people who create things like engineers make better CEOs than finance people who don't understand the value of creation or investing in innovation. And I'm talking outside the banking and Wall Street, but every time a lot of boards feel very comfortable about putting finance types at the top, they think, you know, we need to be more efficient, but then you don't see the investment and those companies go sideways. Do you ever, do you see that? All the time. I don't want to be judging about finance people because I've worked with some of the best in the business and fantastic finance people, but they're good support people. And we've had some finance people become great CEOs, but only because they get out into the operation. They know how things work because you can't do it from a set of numbers. And uh, I've seen that throughout my career. People are strictly managing by the numbers eventually will implode. It will not work. And yeah, it's great to be a cost cutter but you cannot cost cut your way into prosperity. You yeah, I'm 100% agree with you on that. But um, take Boeing. Let's take Boeing for an example. Boeing, yeah. the world's greatest aircraft aviation company. They created commercial, William Boeing created commercial aviation for 100 years. They've been the world's greatest aviation company. So what happened about three CEOs back, they decided, and some guys came in from GE and they said, oh, we're not going to be an engineering lab, which is very pejorative. And Boeing had traded tens of billion dollars of profits. We want to run this like a business. So we're no longer going to be spending all our money on designing new aircraft. We're going to buy our stock back and the stock market will love it. Yeah, they may love it for a while until, uh, you know, you don't spend the money designing a new, new single aisle aircraft, as former CEO recommended. Instead, you go out and you take it on the cheap and you have planes go down called the Boeing 737 MAX. You're killing people. Uh, where's, and because people are not in touch with what's going on. So real engineers are going to be out there understanding how do things work? Does this design really work? Can we be assured? It's the same thing in Medtronic. We have a defibrillator. We have to be 100% assured that product is going to fire and work as it's intended. And if it's not, we've got to pull it back. And that quality, and that design commitment has to be there. So in any kind of high-tech company, you need to have that depth of understanding. I hate stock buybacks. Every time companies waste a lot of money on that when they can be putting money toward innovation and creating new products, and it never seems to work out for them. I mean, GE blew billions of dollars in stock buybacks uh, during the 2000-2008 uh, when they could have used it. Uh, Bed Bath and Beyond blew eleven billion dollars in stock stock buybacks. You know, not helpful at all. Pulling money company. out of the company and then you leave it more abundant. And we've seen with private equity, there's a lot of good aspects of private equity. Who we've seen an awful lot of retailers who are taken over by private equity be, declare bankruptcy. But you notice they always get their money out first, like Bed Bath and Beyond. They get their money sucked out of there first, so if they come out just fine. If it goes into bankruptcy, it's the bondholders, the debt holders. They're left holding the bag. Yeah, horrible. Uh, question from the audience. Leaders are often seen as lacking moral fiber since they can't walk the talk considering the current ecosystem. Trust levels are low today. How do leaders win back trust? I love the word moral fiber. 
You have to lead with a moral compass and you have to have clarity. That's not a religious term. That's you have to know your values and then stay true to your values. And I think a lot of you have lost that. Part of leading in the heart is have that sense of clarity about your beliefs and your true north is tied up in that. And that's what's key to every organization today. And see, it's got to go top to bottom. You, you, in, in an organization, the people on top have to have those values. You can't just ask your people who work there to do that. It's got to go. If the people on top are just about how much money they make, it's not going to end well. So it really has to be the moral standards have to set by the top of the company. And I'm always shocked at the CEOs. I even mentioned in my book, the former CEOs of McDonald's, Hewlett Packard, Intel, uh, you know, that got fired because they didn't follow their own company's standards. Best Buy, you know, what a, what a shock that was. Well, you know, to me, if you're going to be a leader, your, your standards have to be above, beyond. your behavior has to be beyond reproach. And you set the standards for the whole company that are for everyone else to follow. And if you don't do that, you're not going to have a great company. I can say that. So you need to be a, that moral leader of the company and be led by your moral compass. And if you, you do that. A good, you had a good story about Anne Mulcahy, who turned around Xerox, which looked dead in the water and was close to filing for bankruptcy. I mean, I remember they became like a joke. What can we learn from how she turned around Xerox? So can you briefly tell us the story uh, about that and what we could learn? Well, she took over a company where people were hiding the financial problems they had. So they didn't realize what deep trouble. And the company was facing bankruptcy. Cash was going out the door. And they everything was built on some false premises of, uh, of what they had done, promises to their customers that couldn't be fulfilled. But Anne spent her time. She didn't spend time with the stock market when the company's gone. She got out with the people to inspire them around Xerox value. Said, this is a great company. You want to bring it back. She spent all of her time trying to inspire the people that work there to restore Xerox to its roots. And one of the persons she worked closely with that carried that out with Ursula Burns, who was a great engineer from MIT. Ursula later became her successor. So Ursula carried on the manufacturing part and went out and worked the customer side, and they saved the company. But there was a time when Anne wasn't sure was she going to make it or not. But she came back to the roots of her values and said, we have to do it. And she did pull them through that uh, by being that authentic leader. And I've had her come to my classroom many times. She's, I think she's a lead director at Johnson & Johnson now. Just a great leader and great admiration for her character. Um, question from the audience. If you wanted to list the shared qualities and characteristics of type of leaders that you admire the most, what would be on that list? Number one, knowing your true north, being who you are, being authentic, being the authentic you. Number two, knowing your north star. That's that constant place in the sky that you're clear about your purpose. And then treating people with dignity and respect and empowering them to do the work and being closely in touch with that. That's why I mentioned Sachin Nadella. I could also mention Mary Barra, General Motors, a great leader who started in the production lines at age 18 and never lost sight of what that company is all about. She's restored a company that was in bankruptcy and brought it out into becoming, restoring it to a great company. But I think those are the qualities, Mark, that you have to have today to be a great leader. And you have to lead with your heart, not just with your head. Yeah, you have to be smart enough. But uh, you have to lead with your heart. And leaders that do that uh, deliver sustainable results. 
and we can look at them. We've mentioned a number on this call who are delivering great results quarter after quarter. Sure, they may have a bump, may have a bad year. Everyone does, but they're doing a wonderful job. One of the young leaders I really admire is Corey Berry, who's 45, 46 years old. At Best Buy took over from a great CEO, Hubert Jolie. And man, they really led through COVID and she's doing a fantastic job. So it's those kind of leaders that are making the difference. Uh, I've always been interested in what it makes when it makes sense to bring in a leader who hasn't developed relationships in the organizations they are hired to run and or experience in the industry, which is the case of uh, Al Malali, who took over an, um, uh, an almost dead Ford Motor Company. And why did Ford choose him? And what can we learn through his example as a superior coach working with people who had zero experience with him. And it also amazed me, according to the book, that he made very few top-level executive changes. Alan is a, a truly great leader. And I got to know him very well, well when he was at Ford. And we've served on a couple of boards together, Mayo Clinic and elsewhere. Just a, a, a great human being. And he was the one that I alluded to earlier that had built Boeing's commercial aviation business. He should have been CEO of that company, but because some of the CEOs had problems uh, with filing company uh, code of conduct, uh, they went to the outside, brought in uh, someone from GE to run that company. But I can tell you, Alan totally transformed Ford. I grew up in Michigan, and uh, I, on the other side of the state, Grand Rapids, which is a part supply town, was in those days. I can tell you Ford is one of the most political organizations ever. And it was a, they were losing $18 billion a year when he took over totally transform that company. But by doing it right, getting the automobiles right, getting the quality right, getting the design right, working with the first level people. And uh, he was out there. There was a great story. He came to work on the first day and he inherited the office held by Henry Ford too. This is a gargantuan office overlooking the Rouge plant. And, uh, and somebody pointed out, there's the greatest plant in the history of the automobile industry. And Alan says, hey, let's go down there, Mark, and talk to some of the employees. Oh. <laughs> Mr. Malali, our employees don't talk, or, excuse me, our, our CEO doesn't talk to employees. He said, we're going now. And he was very much on the ground and uh, he understood very well what it took. But he made that transition. People used to say, what do you know about designing complex cars? He said, I can tell you, we had a uh, we had aircraft with a quarter of a million part, different parts in them. So yeah, I know a little bit about that. Um, you talked about Mary Barrow a minute ago and who spent 41 years at GE and uh, just the opposite of Alan uh, at Ford, had to change the culture to save the company because of uh, systemic-wide uh, lack of accountability. You ran a jump in a giant company. How hard is it to change an entrenched culture? And who do, you, who do you look for for help to make that happen? Nothing is harder than changing the General Motors culture. It's even harder than Ford. And because they were all run by finance people and no one ever... I was engaged with cars, with automobiles. It was just cost. And every decision was made, let's not make the car better, let's make it cheaper. And they yep. want to put cheap cars that didn't sell very well. Uh, at Medtronic, we we had to get I when I came, we had to restore the focus on on patients. And our mission called for us to do that. And everything was focused on the people we serve. We measured ourselves by how many seconds would it take until another person is restored to full life and health, our mission, by a Medtronic product. And when I came, it was 100 seconds. When I left, it was seven seconds. Today, it's two per second. So you can see the growth of the company, but measured in terms of not 391 a share, but
but in terms of how we can really help restore people to full life and how we can fulfill our mission. And I think that became the mantra. And so that's something everyone can relate to. And that's what I think you have to do. Mary's done that uh, at General Motors. When she came in, they had this ignition switch problem. And I think, I don't know, a couple hundred people died from this. <clears throat> but you know, when they had a problem with the ignition switch, they didn't send it to the quality department. They didn't send it to the engineering department. They didn't send it to manufacturing. They sent it to the law department because we're going to get sued. We have to yeah. worry about the lawsuit. No. So they never fixed the problem. Mary, as head of product development, wasn't even aware of the, uh, the problems with the ignition switch. People didn't believe her when she said that. And so when she got called into Congress and they were beating her up about the ignition switch, she said, look, let me tell you, the problems at General Motors are a lot deeper than the ignition switch. We do not have a culture of quality. And she put in a speak up for quality focus, focus on working. But she only could do that, see, because she started her career and spent the first 10 years working on production lines and being a quality inspector and doing all those frontline jobs. That's why she uh, could be take over the company. Yes, she's been there 41 years. She started and knew that. And she's, you notice they haven't had any strikes at GM because she's very much in touch with the working level people. And they know she cares uh, about things they care about. Uh, you wrote about having a strong moral compass by illustrating uh, Chip Berg, Bergel? Berg, yeah. Berg, uh, CEO of Levi's, uh, focus on diversity and inclusion. He's been, he had been 10 years as CEO of Levi's, according to the book, before the death of George Floyd, pushed him into action. Why do you think it took so long for him and Howard uh, Schwart, uh, Schultz, who you mentioned at Starbucks, to act? was running the day-to-day -day of a large company and its inherited problems blocking their view? Well, I think George uh, Chip Berg is a great leader, very much a moral leader, and he's done some pretty radical things. Now, the culture of Levi's encourages this for over 100 years. So uh, he was concerned about uh, problems in schools with shootings, and he didn't talk about gun safety. He talked about, excuse me, he didn't talk about gun control. He talked about gun safety. And he was way ahead on the women's right to control their own body and, and made some statements on that. Pretty bold and going to get some people against him for doing that. Uh, but uh, I think he knew that uh, Levi's had a diversity, equity, inclusion. But he was, after George Floyd was murdered, he was conscientious enough to go back and really look at it and say, we're not making the progress with our employees. We need to. And we did make some transformative decisions. So. Good for him for doing that. I think a lot of CEOs, my CEOs here in Minneapolis where I'm right now, I'm standing about two and a half miles from where George Floyd was murdered, uh, had to face similar kind of things. Are we really making those changes or do we just have a nice program run through our HR department? And I think people realize they had to be personally engaged in doing that. And that's what Chip did. Um, going back to Jeffrey Emlett, uh, essentially taking over the most valuable company in the world from a market cap of $410 billion to around $150 billion. Was his predecessor, Jack Welch, lucky to ride the wave of cheap capital for 20 years, or was it poor planning on his predecessor and his team not to see the changes and make adjustments to jump on the next wave? Uh, what can we learn from this? Because it kind of reminds me of Bill Belichick. All the assistant coaches from him that become head coaches, I don't think a single one has had a winning record. And when you look at the GE CEOs that came, they were very finance-oriented and could not run the companies that they took over, all the ones that we've mentioned during this hour. So yeah, what's your take tough. on that? Yeah, that's a good – look, Jack was way ahead of his time in the 80s. He became CEO, I think, in 81. 
And he was way ahead of his time. He recognized what it would take to be competitive in the global world, way ahead of Siemens in Germany and Mitsubishi in Japan and uh, other competitors of his gone away now like Westinghouse. And so he transformed GE and he got right down to the working issues. He took out a lot of the bureaucracy, took out a lot of the layers and he did things right. I think he got caught up, you know, he was there 20 years. I think that's too long for anyone to be in charge. And he got a little caught up in being a celebrity of the any and depending upon the uh, the finance business. You know, one thing to finance uh, MRI machines for a hospital or finance jet engines for an airline that doesn't have the cash, uh, that makes a lot of sense. But they got then the consumer finance and then the ML quintupled the level of consumer finance. And that's where they got in real trouble years later. So they lost sight of their roots. They were a manufacturing company and they lost sight of quality and the importance of that. GE used to be the world's leader in appliances. Now they've sold it off because they couldn't produce a quality product out of their factories in Louisville. They didn't have that commitment to quality and design. And I think Jack got away from that and was a little too much caught up in the celebrity. But he was a great CEO. I don't want to diminish him. But you know, when a new CEO comes in, Mark, and you inherit this, you say, okay, I've got some problems. Like I was, Jeff, you know, told me once, you know, I'm afraid we're going to be more than 50% of bank. Well, I said, there's a solution to that problem. But he didn't act on that for 16, 14 years. And uh, it was too late by that time. He should have acted on it a lot earlier, but he liked the profits from it. But he should have spun it off and gotten back to their roots of being a manufacturing company producing quality products. If they had I think done he always that. thought the margins were too thin and he liked it. But then he tried to build a conglomerate himself by buying um, uh, ABC or one of the networks, NBC. And that didn't work out so well either. I mean, because again- Bought a lot of things, Alstom and running trains. Yeah, yeah, I don't think conglomerate leadership works. I started out my career working for Linden Industries. When I joined the company, I had 133 divisions, ranging everything from building ships to uh, sofa frozen foods. Uh, it, it doesn't work. You've got to be concentrated on your core business. If you're in the automobile business, concentrate on that. Don't try to build airplanes. And that's what Boeing should do. And every company's got to concentrate on what it's really good at. And so far, the tech companies, done a, you know, like Apple, have done a pretty good job of that, of not getting so diverse out there. So conglomerate management simply doesn't work. And it's more become kind of a financial manipulation at the top and moving things around and moving reserves around. It started with Harold Janine and ITT, but it simply doesn't work. So I would say focus on your business and make it the very best. And I know at Medtronic, we turned out opportunities to get into the drug business. We turned out opportunities to get into biopharma because that wasn't our expertise. We're a bunch of electrical engineers. We're not, uh, we're not chemists and biologists. And so we had to say, and we chose not to get into heavy equipment unless it was uh, in support of our products. Uh, and I think having that clarity be, it becomes critical to your company. Here's the last question. Um, what is your take on the power of artificial intelligence and what leaders need to do to make sure it's a force for positive change, which I fear will be used to enhance power and wealth, reducing a shrinking middle class? And the guy who headed this up for Google has the same concern and resigned this week from Google. Yeah, I saw that. That's kind of shocking. He's called the father of AI. Yeah. He's 75 years old. Uh, he certainly has the right to go off and do something else, but he's gone out to be an advocate or a warning about the dangers of AI. Now, look, AI has the 
ability to do great things. Let's take my son, who's a head and neck cancer surgeon. I was just with him two days ago, and he's dealing with stage four cancers. You can't see inside the head and neck and all these things around. And so, but he has films and he can take the data he gets, put it into a computer and automatically get fed back 100,000 cases similar. He can find just the right one to show the course of action, what happened after the surgery. So that data can be invaluable in a lot of places. Used properly, it can help. Yes, it's a little bit like the period of automation that was going on when I trained as an industrial engineer uh, in the 60s. It, it, it's eliminating a lot of jobs. So what we need to do is we need to upgrade our workforce. We need to raise the caliber of skills our workforce. This has been a big concern of mine, is we're teaching everyone financial skills. We're not raising caliber. You know, we need plumbers, electricians, we need people that can run lasers and run complex robots who can repair them and fix them. So we need to raise the caliber of our workforce to keep up with AI. That's the only hope we have. And I do think a lot of jobs will be eliminated. People are running spreadsheets, those all be run on AI. You know, even writers, <laughs> I get ready to write, a lot of that stuff will come right out. So uh, Scary. Uh, we'll have to control it. And I'm worried about it being controlled. Because uh, it gets in the wrong hands, you can do a lot of damage, too. And people are trying to warn us of that now. I think we need to listen to them. I can't tell you. The hour went way too fast. I really enjoyed the book, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Mark. And I hope everyone will read the Emerging Leader Edition of True North, because I think it, Mark's asked incredible questions, but a lot of them come out of it. Uh, a lot of the in-depth stories in the book and, and some of the things that we're trying to bring across there. So, and I would love to dialogue with any of you on LinkedIn is my favorite site could be on Twitter or Facebook, but I prefer LinkedIn and I'd love to engage you in an ongoing dialogue and particularly you, Mark, I appreciate the work you're doing uh, to bring such great ideas to people. Oh, thank you so much. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, everybody. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.